Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And of course, we are proudly sponsored by MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, the Government Finance Officers Association, and Build America Mutual. I'm Justin Marlowe, and I'm joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host, Marylander, winter weather survivor, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin, and Happy New Year! As this is the first time we're we're getting back together, and uh, and now 2024, we did yes, Happy we did have a, a yeah, we did have a we had a good chunk of snow, not as much as I'd hoped for actually uh, this this past weekend, but but enough to have some kids over from from our son's class for for sledding. So so the one time a year where living on the slope of a mountain has its advantages. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds straight out of Norman Rockwell, if I don't say so myself. It kind of was. <laughs> Joey's, Joey's day sledding. Very, very good. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, exciting stuff. And the uh, as we're recording this today, the uh, 49ers are well seated in the playoffs. We'll, we'll yes, see how they goodness. do. <laughs> I know. We won't talk about the Ravens game. I, I May have may have been overconfident with some friends around here in Maryland about how that game would go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Always, um, yeah. It's hard to know if if it's a good if it's a good thing or not a good thing that every <laughs> single game in the NFL is that competitive that you never uh, exactly know how it's going to go. Well, so speaking of the new year and looking ahead to 2024, we're fortunate to have on the podcast with us today, Laura Allen, who is a budget analyst with the state of Maryland, um, but in some sense more important, at least with respect to our podcast. She's also the sitting president of the Government Finance Officers Association, GFOA. Uh, she was elected into that role and and is uh, serving that role and will through 2024 until a little bit later on in the, in the year. And uh, GFOA, obviously, very, very important organization, of course, full disclosure, a sponsor of the Public Money Pod. But beyond that, uh, arguably the, the most consequential professional association in the field, state local government finance, represents lots of members, sets the intellectual and uh, analytical tone on lots of different things that go on within the field, produce all sorts of best practices, produce all sorts of policy guidance, training, uh, just a, a, a really robust organization for all things that that deal with state and local public money. And so naturally, Liz, we both have encountered uh, GFOA many, many, many times in our respective careers, both as consumers of their of their work, but also as contributors to their work. We talked, uh, we're, I should say, we're interested in, in talking to Laura quite a bit about the research outlook for GFOA in particular, anyone who's followed their work as of late. Uh, the joke certainly on our campus is that right now GFOA is rethinking everything. They have a rethinking budgeting, a rethinking risk, a rethinking revenue, um, lots of really in-depth research focused on some of these fundamental issues in state and local public finance. When you think about the research side of what GFOA has been up to and, and what Laura might be able to share with us, Liz, what comes to mind for you? Yeah, I think as as a journalist, uh, you know, GFOA was just kind of, I guess, your standard government organization, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, in the when when I first start, began, uh, when it was first in my my sphere at governing um, in 2012, 2013, and and remained that way for a little while, but then since then it has really become this huge resource because of that research that they're doing it's and particularly the rethinking 
everything <laughs> research that they're doing. It's it's been I've written about it a bunch of times, and you know, not because anyone has told me to, but just because I genuinely find it find it interesting, and and I particularly find you know connections between like behavioral psychology and and some of those those points that that they explore in the research really on point and and relevant to conversations going on today and I'm I'm thinking about political polarization I mean that's even that has something that the GFOAs has touched on in in its research so it's just been very very relevant and and I've I've appreciated that it's become much more it's become a resource, whereas you know before it would be one of those typical places you reach out to on a phone call to get a comment on something, you know, and and now it's it's way way more than that. Yeah, indeed, and we're all in some sense pursuing the same mission, right? Which is to mm-hmm. to take this complicated and uh, and sometimes opaque and and difficult to understand at times world of state and local public finance and engage as broad a range of stakeholders in it as possible citizens consumers regulators journalists everybody who who may need to know about it and they've clearly taken that on as a core part of their mission and it's great to know that we're all rolling in the same direction as this Well, we're pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Laura Allen, who is a budget analyst three in capital budgeting at the Maryland Department of Budgeting and Management and president of the Government Finance Officers Association. Of course, we're proud to have GFOA as a sponsor here at the Public Money Pod. And for that reason and many others, thrilled to have Laura with us. Welcome to the Public Money Pod. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you here. And um, I would love for us to start off by talking about just kind of broadly the GFOA's priorities in uh, in 2024. What are what are the top top things you'll be advocating for and, and, and looking at? In terms of our priorities, we're really addressing the public finance staffing challenge, put a lot of time and energy behind that, and implementing our DEI initiatives. But beyond that, we're focused on supporting our members in a variety of ways. We're developing case studies on how they can attract and retain talent, things like shortening the time that it takes to hire, exploring benefit options that they may not have offered uh, previously so that they can retain the talent that they have. We're also rethinking the way that we work. We're rethinking budgeting, rethinking revenues, rethinking risk analysis. And then we're also supporting members, especially those that are new to the profession. We are developing training programs that will support our members at every stage of their career. And we're launching and expanding mentoring programs through a variety of partnerships that we have. So that when you come in as a new member, to the profession and new to GFOA, you can get a lot of support around your career goals and what you'd like to accomplish in your career in public finance. The, you mentioned exploring benefit options and, and this idea of mentoring. What are, what are I guess, some of the goals around that? And do you have any examples that you could give us? Yeah. So one of the challenges we're really having is um, getting people, finding people. There's a lot of vacancies out there in the public sector. So we're encouraging our members, and many of them are doing that on their own, uh, to figure out ways that they can, again, attract and retain. So shortening the time that it takes to hire, you know, in the private sector, they can hire somebody from initial contact to onboarding in about 21 days. In the public sector, it can take up to six months. So a lot of our members are challenged in terms of getting the 
the talent in the door. Then once they have them, they're looking at creative ways to keep them. I know some organizations are looking at benefits such as uh, parental care or a discount or a, a connection they can offer for folks that are sort of, what do you call this, the sandwich folks that are in between, they have kids and aging parents. And I know uh, several people who work in an organization that said that, you know, they really would have to look for something else if they didn't have that benefit that would help offset the cost of the assisted living facility that they have their parent in or the at-home care that they need in order so that they can support their parent who's aging in place. It's really interesting to hear about some of those I guess we might call near-term or intermediate-term kinds of strategies that you're describing, Laura. We've talked often on this podcast about just in general growing that talent pool and thinking longer term about some of the challenges to, to meeting some of those staffing needs. Are you doing anything that's maybe focused on the kind of longer term growing the sort of generational shift, I guess you could say, in terms of attracting new talent to the field? Yeah, I think part of what we're doing in GFOA, and I touched on it a few minutes ago, is making sure that we're providing training that supports our members at all stages of their career. So if you come in and you're an accountant and eventually you'd like to be a finance director, there's a path for you to travel in our training where you can do that. Or if you come in kind of like I did as a budget analyst and eventually you like to be a city manager, we have a path of travel that you can follow in those training programs that will help you along your career in that way. The other thing that I've seen GFWay do more recently, I'd say in the last five years, is shift a focus from technical skills to soft skills so that we're focused more on public speaking and leadership skills. As you move up in your career, it's the technical skills that might get you the job, but it is actually, I believe, the soft skills that'll make you successful when you're managing people. So the expansion of our leadership program, I think, is instrumental in giving folks the skills and abilities they need to be successful should they choose to move up. I mean, not everybody wants to be a finance director or city manager. Uh, well, we have training for everybody at all skill levels and in all interests in terms of what they like to accomplish ultimately. Yeah, it's amazing how being a, a really good accountant uh, is different from leading a team of really good accountants. Those are two very different skill sets. Yep. I mean, you have to know the numbers and you have to know how to put it all together. Now, I'll be frank, I'm not an accountant by background, but you need to know how all of that works. But leading people, communicating effectively, especially when it comes to complicated technical financial issues, is a whole skill in and of itself. And I feel like GFOA has done a really nice job. I know for me personally, at several training sessions I've gone to and a lot of resources GFOA provides has enabled me to communicate very technical language in more common terms so that elected officials who don't have the training and members of the public who just want to know it in a straightforward way can get the information without really having to understand a lot of the details that we know as public finance professionals. I'm also interested if you, if you could share a little bit more about the, the work that GFOA is doing in DEI. Um, what are you looking at and are you looking at that as, as something that as a, that can also help expand the hiring pool? Definitely. I mean, it's a core value. It's an essential component of our mission. And, you know, the United States has become much more diverse. Our communities that we work for are increasingly diverse. And so it is just a, a key value in the way that we work. And we recognize this and have been pursuing it for, for, for many years. Oh, I'm particularly proud of the Racial Equity Task Force and the work that is being led by our CEO, Chris Morrill, and the management team 
to, to walk that talk internally within the GFOA organization. And I think they've done some amazing work there. I'm incredibly proud. Uh, the work that we're doing uh, with the members, I think, is also really important. We have an affinity group for just about any segment of our population who's interested in it. And we are expanding our offerings when it comes to the conferences, making sure that there's opportunities for the affinity groups to network. We also have a very strong women in public finance network. I touched on mentoring a little bit earlier when I was speaking. That group has what I consider to be a model mentoring program. It's interesting about 68% of the um, leadership roles in public finance are women. So it's a real opportunity there to move those folks if they want to up to higher level roles in government. So government finance hiring is opportunity to continue the approach and spread DEI from a position of strength. Diversity is a strength for public finance. We cannot rest on our laurels. And this is one of the things I don't think we talk enough about when it comes to recruiting is the opportunity that public finance offers a diverse workforce. You know, if you want to come work someplace that reflects your community and reflects your country, public finance is really the place to be. Uh, hiring pools have to maintain and grow in their diversity for there to be continued success and strength in the makeup of our government finance officers locally and nationally. And fundamentally, it's the right thing to do. It's where the public finance has found success over time. An inclusive workforce is the future and public finance needs to continue to lead the way in this regard. And Probably just spinning off of that too, as you mentioned earlier, the the mentoring and training available through GFOA. I think um, maybe not a lot of people naturally think of public who aren't in public finance might think of it as a jumping off point to county administrator, city manager, or some of those more forward facing, uh, more public type of types of positions. But it it's also seems that the diversity within public finance is a real asset in terms of diversifying other areas of government as well. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think you know, I started my career in the budget office. And my advice to anybody interested in working in local government is, you know, get your foot in the budget office. It is central to so much of what goes on in a city. Larger cities, in many cases, have budget officers in those departments. So it's a real opportunity to get, as I mentioned, a sense of the values of the community, but also your your finger in a whole bunch of different pies. What is it about state and local public finance that makes it an attractive place for women to work? Because that is definitely an interesting statistic that I hear all the time about how it, it is a the, the composition of the workforce is, is different that way than a lot of other parts of finance. What is it about state and local finance that makes it uh, a place that's particularly good for, for women? My conclusions are that um, it, it provides women a pretty uh, supportive environment. I mean, every public finance office I've worked in, there's been a, a team of people, there's a cohesive relationship. And my personal opinion of women is we thrive in those um, supportive environments. If actually it's not there, women will try to make it. Again, it's my personal opinion, trying to make it a supportive environment. So, so my personal opinion of this is that it has to do with the team that is formed in the, the team environment that you work in when you're in the public sector that I think happens to be more conducive and supportive uh, to women in general. So, Laura, you mentioned a couple of times now some of the research efforts underway at uh, GFOA. And 
Of course, that's something that Liz and I both are very interested in as consumers of that research and sometimes uh, contributors to that research as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about what, what's in store, uh, what's on the research agenda, so to speak, for 2024? So as I mentioned, we're focused on um, rethinking budgeting, rethinking revenues, and rethinking risk. So right now we're bringing the longitudinal work on rethinking the budget to place where it is a level of completion, so we're almost there, then there will always be work to do as we go forward. So one of the great things about being involved in GFOA is we believe in a process of continuous improvement. So while we're doing this research and work in rethinking budgeting, we recognize that we can't rest on our laurels and we'll continue to do it. We're getting the rethinking financial reporting work moving forward off the runway and into full flight. And we're looking at sales tax and property tax reform through the rethinking revenue perspective. We also have, I think, a very interesting partnership with Rutgers University, where we're exploring um, artificial intelligence and how that can be used effectively. We have some communities that are using AI to do things like process um, business licenses, which I think is really interesting. The real opportunity, I believe right now, especially when we're having trouble hiring and finding folks to work in public finance, I feel like AI provides a real opportunity to potentially rework the way that we function, you know, change systems, use it as a tool. I recognize it has its drawbacks, but in many ways, I think it can be a resource to perhaps, you know, fill in some of the steps that maybe you're having problems getting staff to fill some basic, straightforward um, tasks within your finance department or within perhaps your building code department. Yeah, I find that work really, really interesting and, and definitely see the that linkage between AI providing, at least helping out with that solution in terms of hiring and really allowing people in finance departments to to have those those nitty gritty, like the, the mindless stuff taken care of so that they can actually do do that deep work. Which I think is really the more interesting part of the of the job. But you want to discount the fact that it's not hundred percent accurate, right? It's got its own little issues to have to pay attention to. But I think it's a real opportunity there, uh, especially as we're having trouble you know, filling some of those positions. Look at doing things a little bit differently. Um, who knows? I think it's a great tool. It's a, a huge research agenda, Laura. I mean, a lot of different topics, which makes sense in some ways because budgeting and finance is everywhere and touches on lots of different kinds of topics. And it's, it has been interesting, again, as both a contributor and a, and a consumer of that research to see all the different kinds of perspectives, all the kinds of disciplinary perspectives that GFOA research has been able to incorporate, really leaning into uh, you know, behavioral psychology and social psychology and computer science and all of these other fields to, to really bring up a, a kind of multifaceted approach to all of those rethinking uh, processes that you described. Um, and it's it's interesting and, it, and I think it sets out an, an interesting path that we can think about going forward. Just kind of curious, when GFOA is thinking about the research that it wants to do, obviously we all have unlimited research interests and limited time to to pursue those interests. Um, how, how does GFOA go about sort of setting those research priorities? Yeah, it's interesting. It's kind of a, a combination of things. So we survey our members on a regular basis. So we want to know what challenges they're facing, what they're interested in having us look at. We want to know how they think. So that's one of the components that we use. We look at data in terms of what states and municipalities are doing across the country. 
And we look at what changes are happening there. And then we also look at past work, you know, what work that we've completed that maybe we just want to dig a little bit deeper or take in a slightly different direction. And also, and one of my personal favorites is emerging issues, like what's new, what's hot on the horizon. The staffing challenges I mentioned is something we've been working on for the last couple of years. Um, That's still a very hot topic and came out of several conversations we had and just the loud voice of members saying like, how hey, we can't find anybody. So sometimes it's just an emergent, emergent issue. It's a really interesting combination of things. It's one of the things that I think is great about GFOA is we're very nimble. And so we keep our eye and pulse on what's going on and we're able to shift if we need to and focus slightly differently as we need to. So it's really a combination of things that come together that set the research agenda. I've, I've really been impressed as a journalist how re- relevant the, the research has been to, you know, what's going on in the national conversation with the, the rethinking revenues and talking about regressivity and, and equitable taxation. Uh, you know, that, 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 those, that set of papers in particular, I think, has been really like informative for my reporting, but also really just kind of touches on some of the national conversation around equity and, and, you know, talking about who pays. Right. And how regressive sometimes those payments are and how sometimes it's incredibly punitive. I mean, I'll say on a personal note, um, I've read a lot of the research they've done into fines that are applied to people who, you know, come out of prison. And one of the um, departments I have in my portfolio at the state of Maryland is uh, Maryland Department of um, Public Safety, which is the correction system for the state of Maryland. And it brought my awareness to an issue that I hadn't really, unfortunately, paid a lot of attention to. My focus was in local government. Mm -hmm. Since I worked at the state, it's really been eye-opening. And it's been incredibly beneficial to take the research that GFOA has done and apply it um, to my my new day-to-day job. You mentioned uh, artificial intelligence a little bit ago, Lauren. I know that GFOA has an explicit focus on that at the moment and some real plans going forward. You had mentioned the the partnership with Rutgers, uh, particularly around financial reporting. Can you tell us any more about the, kind of the broader plans for thinking about AI and how it fits into budgeting and finance? Yeah, so we're doing an internal assessment. We're exploring how GFOA data that's been collected over the years can be capitalized through AI. We're exploring opportunities for improving processes in our internal award review process and leveraging partnerships with Rutgers University, which I've mentioned, Microsoft and IBM to assist us in all of that process. Um, To your point about, you know, is there a way of redesigning systems and having AI do some of the more simple, straightforward work? Uh, When we're looking at the awards program, we believe there's a real opportunity there because there's a lot of very, uh, very repetitive, straightforward components to the award system, not 100%, but we think that there's a real opportunity there. And then in terms of an external assessment, identifying governments that are utilizing AI to improve operations, we're identifying skills that future public sector workers will need to utilize AI, and highlighting stories and examples in government finance review, which we finally call GR, GFR, national training, and at our conference. And this year, our conference is going to be in Orlando, Florida. One specific area of focus is working with AI to extract data from the annual annual comprehensive financial report, the ACFR. Um, ACFRs have never been used. um, They've never been user-friendly documents. 
There are always barriers to success in manual aggregation based on issues as simple as the format of data. I kind of touched on this a few minutes ago. There's a lot of very straightforward components to the review, but not 100%. So once extracted and aggregated, we're going to analyze the data and use it going forward. So we think AI has got a real opportunity there to help us with the review of the ACFRS. Amen to that. As somebody <laughs> control F'd my way through a lot of ACFRS to find what I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah, it's not a user-friendly document. <laughs> Definitely. One of the things we do, one of the uh, awards we have is the popular annual financial mm -hmm. report. Um, it's less of a technical accounting document. It's essentially, I think it is like a one-page or two-page budget summary. And uh, one of the programs we've got going that I think is really a lot of fun is getting graduate students partnered up with cities to um, help them figure out the best way to do their popular annual financial report. It's been a very successful program. And I think it's been really a great opportunity for graduate students who are interested in getting into government public finance in particular. It gives them a, a window into what it's like to work in a government organization, even if we do it remotely, which a lot of them are, like just totally remote program. But I think it's a great opportunity for folks to get a sense of what it's like to work in, a, in the public sector, especially in public finance. Uh, well, Laura, Ed, we've covered a lot. Is there anything else that you, you want to add? I, I just appreciate you taking the time uh, to speak with me about the important work that GFOA is doing. It's an honor for me to serve as GFOA president this year. It's an opportunity for me to give back to an organization that has given me so much. And my focus this year has really been on people, supporting our members and uh, supporting our employees who do amazing work. And we would not be able to do the things that we do at GFOA without the amazing, hardworking and talented people that we have working in that organization. Well, thanks so much to Laura Allen, who's a budget analyst with the Capital Budgeting Section in the Maryland Department of Budgeting and Management, and of particular importance, President of the Government Finance Officers Association. Laura, we really appreciate you giving us some time here today on the Public Money Pod. Thanks so much, it was great. Thanks again to Laura Allen for joining us on the pod. We touched quite a bit in, in kind of all the areas they're doing on that staffing issue and the connection with, with AI. And it uh, it really coincides with the, the story that I had pulled up for, for this week's Ripped from the Headline segment. It's written by Catherine Barrett and Richard Green, some of our, our <laughs> old friends here in public finance. <laughs> um, they, it's their, one of their latest pieces on, on Route 50, and it's titled The Future of Government Jobs Post generative AI. And generative AI is, is like the kind of AI that learns um, instead of just doing things automatically. That is a super layman's way of putting it. But uh, but just in case anyone was wondering what the difference is. So uh, Barrett and Green interviewed a, um, a number of people in, in local government about this. They kind of go at it with by saying that governments are are increasingly learning how to take advantage of information retrieval, communication dimensions of this new technology. Think Chat GPT, um, and what the impact is on on customer service, things like customer service, call centers, and and what that all means. And they reference a, a report from Accenture and interview someone 
from Accenture who's named Ryan Oaks. He's their global health and public services industry practice chair. Accenture did a report on it. It calculated that across both the public and private sectors, generative AI or gen AI has the potential for automating and augmenting work hours in 63% of office and administrative support jobs, that's a lot, almost as many, 59% of business and financial services jobs, and f- and on average, 40% of occupations generally. That's, I mean, that kind of blows my mind. Ryan Oaks says he's kind of marveled at the speed with which technological responses to the pandemic had occurred, um, and he wonders if it'll continue at this rate. He says, AI has, this is a quote from him, AI has just put what we saw during the pandemic on steroids. It's opened additional possibilities in the ways in the ways that governments can connect data, augment workers, and fill gaps in staffing. Um, there's, of course, uh, a balance to this. There's that governments have to balance the risk of using the potential, these potential advances with the hazards of cybersecurity and privacy issues. There's also significant concerns about, about bias. But in terms of that staffing piece and just using it, using it to help you do, do your job, do the parts of your job that actually don't require a whole lot of brain power. Um, they interviewed Andy Peterson, who's the village manager in Bayside, Wisconsin. Um, he's using controlled gen AI on his government's website. He started this in early November and he's enthusiastic about what the possibilities so far and what the impact on government jobs will be making things more user-friendly for everybody, employees, but also the general public. Um, he says the tool has become a bit of a succession plan and training module for his employees and he can see immediate ways in which Gen AI has changed the way his workers get information, produce documents, and learn about the small government that they serve. Uh, Bayside, Wisconsin is a town of about, sorry, village of about 4,400 people. Um, just a last couple of points from the story, again, about staffing. Um, they So Route 50 has previously reported that at least 16 states have taken steps to move away from the more traditional degree requirements, um, according, and that's according to the National Conference of Legislatures. States are, are looking at future of work and recruiting type things. Colorado has has an office of the future of work that directly focuses on creating you know, this pipeline. And it's uh, collaborating on a parallel effort within the Department of Personnel Administration to build these skill-based learning programs for the for state employees. And just the last piece, again, that, that need for caution, Barrett, Barrett and Green write about gen, generative AI in particular presents dangers as well as opportunities. As governments experiment with a new technology, they will be faced with sales pitches from vendors who may see a striking opportunity in this new is in this exciting new world but who lack sufficient background and knowledge to provide necessary guardrails rails and that's one of the um that's from what barrett and green write and so with a great power comes great responsibility i guess <laughs> and so it's just it's an interesting kind of uh you know taking the temperature of, of where we're at but really that that connection too to government jobs and training employees on AI, thinking about it in terms of recruitment. I mean, there are so many, I guess, different kinds of ways in which this is going to affect state and local government um, staffing. So I just thought thought it was interesting and a good connection with some of the things that Laura said. Um, Justin, what were some of the things that you you took away from the story? Yeah, uh, two in particular agree completely on the shout out to uh... Uh, Barrett and Green, good friends and uh, longtime contributors to this wonderful world of state and local public finance. There were, there were kind of two things that stood out to me. One in that uh, quote from Andy Peterson that was really from Andy Peterson from 
from Bayside, Wisconsin. It's really interesting how he talked about how this is becoming a de facto succession planning tool, which I hadn't thought of it that way, but it makes a lot of sense. Like we, we often criticize state and local governments for not doing a particularly good job with succession planning. And of course, it's hard to do a good job with succession planning when you don't have enough people to get the work done today. It's hard to think about what the work is going to look like in the future and who you need to do that work. But it really makes a good point that with some of these new AI tools, you're not necessarily thinking about the people you need to continue to do the work. You're thinking of it in terms of bundles of skills, or you're thinking of it in terms of where that technology is going and what that technology will be able to do for you. So it fixes it to a very different sort of question than the one we typically think of when we think of succession planning, which is probably a good thing, but it's a huge shift. And and you could argue that that may or may not be the right reason, the best reason to change how we think about succession planning, just because there's this new technology that allows us to think differently about it. So it definitely raises that that question from sort of an HR and obviously a finance perspective, given that so much of what we do in finance is about paying paying people and paying for people. So I was really struck by that comment about succession planning. The other thing that, that was mentioned, and, and we've heard this before with respect to AI, is how it really can give you a different look at the way you are perceived by citizens. It's one thing to have a, a 311 system where somebody calls in and still asks, you know, questions to a person or they go to a, a chatbot type thing and enter, you know, enter a question. And the goal is to try to take that question and and sort of shoehorn it into some pre-existing answers about how to get a business license permit or how to apply for a, a you know, a festival for whatever it is, as opposed to and some what AI can do for you, which is just to take what someone says and process it, or to take all of the questions that are asked in whatever form they're asked and find patterns in the way that those questions come out that can tell you something about the way citizens and taxpayers perceive what you're doing as a government. And that's where the real sort of business intelligence for all of this comes from. If you are a state or local government, particularly on the finance side, thinking about how people perceive the tax burden in the community, thinking about how people perceive whether their taxes are fair, thinking about the value that they receive for taxes. A lot of that information could come up through these sort of 311 citizen engagement AI types of systems. And if we're smart about it, we'll be able to find ways to use those those data to try to better understand and maybe respond a little bit differently to not just those kinds of questions, but to think about service delivery and how we pay for state and local government in ways that are a little bit more in line maybe with the way taxpayers and citizens are thinking about it. Thanks again to our Season 2 sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on The Public Money Month.